0: Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save.
1: This is A Different Perspective with Kevin, Kevin Randall, a retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall.
2: And hello. This is, in fact, A Different Perspective, and I am Kevin Randall. Before I bring on my guest, I uh, have to rant. I was uh, somewhere the other day, and I saw a copy of a magazine published by the History Channel about the paranormal. And of course, it always includes a section on UFOs. And it annoys me that UFOs are in the paranormal realm. Uh, I think of paranormal like ghosts and, and the Bermuda Triangle and ESP and this sort of esoteric stuff and not really UFOs. I don't think of it as paranormal. What annoyed me, of course, is they mentioned Roswell. And they, of course, bought into the Project Mogul explanation. I am astonished that people still buy this explanation when clearly flight number four, which was the mogul balloon flight that supposedly caused the debris, is mentioned at all since Dr. Albert Crary, who was the project manager, wrote in his field notes that flight number four never flew. But what really got me was there was a note on the Aurora, Texas alleged crash. And because the UFO hit a windmill, they published a picture of a windmill with a flying saucer in it, a UFO, a well-known picture. And anybody who studied UFOs for more than 10 minutes or photography for more than 10 minutes realized what the UFO is, is in fact, a lens flare. I don't know why this thing keeps being published as a UFO picture, but everybody knows what it is. And the second thing they they did was they published the pictures or picture taken by the Coast Guardman in uh, July of 1952. I think everybody's pretty well established that uh, they're not flying saucers in this picture. And it may well be a hoax, but uh, I looked it up on the in the Project Blue Book files just the other day because of this uh, magazine article, and realized that the statements by the co-skirtsman, <clears throat> excuse me, both the uh, photographer and the other witness Are very very weak, and in fact they're filled with what I think of as weasel words. Meaning they don't want to lie about something, but they're trying to maintain the uh, story. And uh, I have published on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com an analysis of this whole thing, so you can read in detail. You can see the pictures. You can. See what the Coast Guardsman said. You can see the picture of the UFO near the tower and all of that, the water tower and all of that sort of thing. For those of you who want to follow it, follow up on it. But the but the real point is, I am just tired of these magazines dealing with UFOs um, as part of a larger paranormal um, work and not doing any kind of basic research. Having now gotten that off my chest, we will move on. I am going to be speaking with Don Schmidt. I don't think he really needs much of an introduction. Everybody knows who who he is, he's been on the program many times, and I think um, a lot of people enjoy our conversations because they're not really adversarial per se, but a discussion of the UFO phenomenon from, uh, well, different perspectives. Don Schmidt, welcome to A Different Perspective.
3: Well, hello my friend, good to be back with you, Kevin. So hey, you want to talk about History Channel?
2: Uh, If you have something to to, to add, please do so.
3: Well, it's amazing that, uh, and as we both experienced with uh, the uh, series that ran last December, that even when they could consult with the so-called experts on the topic, and in this case it would have been Roswell, that they fail to do so, that they uh, decide to go off on their own tangents and compile their own information. Their own research, and then you watch the program, and you're practically jumping out of your chair, going, "Why did they include that? Why did they use that particular witness or or non-witness? Why couldn't they even get the rank of that uh, officer correct? When you know we both know exactly what the, the rank is, and it, it just again smacks of just the laziest of journalism. But I don't know that we can accuse the cable networks of even journalism as much as they're in the entertainment business
2: well i think that's the key it's entertainment and i think the reason they go out and look for their own witnesses because they want to they want something new something different that hasn't been discussed and even though they find somebody else to talk about it the information is still the same
3: it is still the same and the fact that they even resurrect the old discredited, old disproven. I mean, as I, I couldn't agree with you more, how often do we have to explain away flight number four? Um, you know, without having a single witness, without being able to put it on that very site, without being able to even demonstrate any record that it was launched. I mean, yes, the balloon. A train was launched, but there was no array train. There was no uh, nothing else as far as the instrumentation or anything that was part of that. They had filled the balloons with helium. They jettisoned the balloons. That was the extent of it. That hardly would uh, you know, uh, reflect the, the type of wreckage that all the witnesses have described. So it's like, why do they always fall back on the government of all authorities on a topic that the government has been running interference on for almost 75 years?
2: I, I wanted. I need to say this, because you know I've I've studied the Mogul balloon thing in depth, and they always come out. Well, it was a top secret Project Mogul. No, while, it the pur- while the purpose was classified, yes, it may have been top secret. What was going on in New Mexico? The balloon launches was, was not, not.
3: Was not. No.
2: We have pictures from newspapers of the balloon launches, and the the, was it the Aligar Aligar Allegor- Allegor- News? Right. On July tenth has a picture. And one of the pictures has a stepladder in it as they're trying to Perfect. launch a balloon. And Perfect. Charles Moore told me he bought the ladder. Yes. So uh, it links it directly was, to what was going tra- on in New Mexico.
3: <laughs> well, as, you, as and you recall, too, I mean, they were putting on these demonstrations all over the country as though not only were they trying to explain away Roswell, but uh, all the flying disc reports at that time that they were all mistakenly, you know, high altitude uh, balloons, That, uh, you know, based on the air pressure would uh, tend to become more elliptoid and maybe look like a a, a disc at high altitude. But the difference always comes back with Roswell is when when it's on the ground in front of you and you can actually pick it up and hold it in your hands, you might be able to determine that it's a balloon, you know, juxtapose it 10,000 feet up.
2: Well, Uh, to take to take that one step further, you know, you you and I both talked to Sheridan Cabot a number of times. Oh, yes. And we sat in there when he first denied that he'd ever been involved in any balloon recovery whatsoever. He was too busy to to do that. But then he comes out and he tells Colonel Weaver, who, by the way, has been on this program, about um, picking up the the balloon debris or recognizing it immediately for what it was. And my thought is, why didn't you mention this to Jesse Marcel right then? First Jess, I,
3: this is a balloon. Exactly. We don't need to stay here. Let's go home. And then to take it a step further, well, then he, at the least he should have done, as far as informed, Colonel Blanchard, the base commander, before they put out the press release, before they supposedly made you know, an embarrassment of the very people in charge of the atomic bomb at that time, the 509th uh, bomb wing. So uh, we know, I mean, he contradicted himself and he really discredited himself in that uh, supposed sworn affidavit that he gave to Colonel Weaver.
2: Absolutely. I think we should move on from Roswell, though.
3: Yes, yes.
2: Rather than we beat that dead horse. uh, (laughs) Oh, my God, now the PETA people are going to come after me for that expression. Oh,
3: my God, I know. (laughs) Um,
2: I I wanted to mention to you uh, up front uh, the government changing UFO now to Uap from right. unidentified flying object to unidentified aerial phenomenon right what's your reaction to that
3: well and, and in some respects that's almost a takeoff on what the Russians you know when they talk about uh, aerial um, as far as anomaly or aerial a phenomenon in, in that sort. So it's as though they were playing around with words and trying to, well, how can we come up a whole new concept, or a whole new approach and move forward, uh, you know, from possibly even this uh, next month, from June of 2021. And uh, it's the same old horse, so to speak. I'm more concerned of the fact that nobody seems to be addressing the the long-established history of the phenomenon that all the players that are currently involved really know nothing prior to maybe 2004 regarding the subject.
2: Well, that's an interesting take on it because we know we move, uh, we now introduce a new term, uh, UAP, and we kind of divorce it from the long history of right. the UFO phenomenon. So now it's like something that's brand new and we will dispose of this new phenomenon now and move on to other arenas and ignore this long history. And when, uh, I think it may have been Jimmy Carter, one of the presidents, proposed moving the UFO investigation to NASA.
3: That was They covered.
2: objected to it. Right, right. NASA didn't want any part of it. And no, I think
3: it, that's right.
2: I don't think it would have helped their um, image at all by getting involved in the UFO investigations, but there should have been somebody investigating uh, it. Right. And we, well, we know there was.
3: But when you think about it, I mean, NASA with their limited uh, budgetary constraints, um, they're dealing as far as, uh, you know, just like after the uh, Challenger and, and the Columbia uh, disasters, for example, and the fact that it would shut down the entire program for two or three years at a time. And yet you can have a plane crash with 300 fatalities and the next plane goes right back up. So NASA's always walking on eggshells in that regard. And for that matter, what interest or what involvement would they have even had with the subject? I think it's one of the reasons that even when uh, the late Congressman Stephen Schiff, went th- uh, through the GAO, the General Accounting Office, when they made that document search, and one of the, uh, you know, the uh, sources that they did not request or rely on for documentation was NASA, our own space program, because what, you know, what files would they have compiled regarding, you know, a local phenomenon, unless they were concerned that it would impede, you know, a potential rocket launch or something at times. Um, to me, when, when Carter made that request to NASA, it was it was like it was because he was uh, de- uh, denied by all other branches of the military and departments of intelligence, and he just tossed it at NASA, hoping they might bite.
2: Well, it's interesting you 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 bring that up because I did a book, as I think everybody knows, called "UFOs in the Deep State," right. and in that I explore the the Carter. Uh, claim that he was going to look into the UFOs and talking to Dan Sheehan and a couple of people about that, we learned that the way that the uh, uh, deep state or the government can inhibit the president's investigation, they don't have to outright deny it and say, well, I can't tell you that, Mr. President, it's it's classified uh, above your level. But what they can do is, you know, there's a lot of agencies involved in this, Mr. President. We'll draw all this material together from these agencies and we'll get you a comprehensive report and they just never bothered to get the report done. Well, we're in the works on it, or, or something else comes up that takes precedence. Like in the Carter administration, it would have been the uh, Iran hostage situation. Yes, that certainly yes, would have yes. diverted his attention.
3: And you certainly know better than most as far as the compartmentalization as they use as an excuse. But, the, and, and we both know as far as just what efforts it takes to just retrieve a single Freedom of Information Act request. I mean, it can literally take years for just a single, you know, document. And the thought that, and I always come back to, and and you again know this better than most, that within the compartmentalization of a particular branch of the military, it even is worse from branch to branch because they're really not cooperating or sharing much of anything with other branches. And I think the best example was during Desert Storm, when General Norman Schwarzkopf was having a daily briefing, and as, you know, representing the army, and he complained that they didn't know if they could march into Baghdad because the Air Force had declared air supremacy within the first night, and then the Navy was still launching the tomahawks into Iraq, and neither one was on the same page. And, 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 that's, a,
2: and that's a good place to break in here, because we're going to have to take a commercial break. Um, I always want to thank people for taking a look at uh, The Best of Project Blue Book and, of course, Roswell in the 21st Century and Encounters in the Desert. Uh, take a look at those at Amazon. Uh, make a rating if you can. It certainly will help. You are listening to A Different Perspective on the Zone Broadcast Network, and we'll be back right after this, so please stick around.
0: Don't wait. Visit Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save.
2: I am joined here with Don Schmidt. Although we are practicing social distancing, being I'm in my house and he's in his, we no longer have to do that because we're fully vaccinated.
3: We're practicing- CDC we are practically next door though Wisconsin, Iowa. so
2: but, and the CDC says we don't have to wear masks when we go outside anymore like any of us really listen to that nonsense, but that's a whole other argument. Another show. When we went away, you were I think making a good point and, and that was something that uh, came up during my tenure in the Gulf as well that the um, communication systems, didn't communicate well enough, meaning the Army couldn't really con- communicate with the Air Force, who couldn't communicate with the Navy, who had trouble communicating with the Marines. and they were trying to come up with a system that would uh, allow all the various branches to communicate in a combat environment uh, with one another. And that is kind of, uh, I think, where we are on the, the UFO thing. If the Navy has something going on, they may not be talking to the Air Force about it, although it seems... If they're talking in the continental United States, it's an Air Force problem. If they're out in international waters, I guess it would be a Navy problem. Uh, What do you think about the the latest Navy things going on, the latest videos and uh, uh, the Navy kind of involving itself in UFO investigation?
3: Well, in many respects, I see it as repeat of what we experienced. When we worked with the late Congressman Stephen Schiff of New Mexico, and that he finally resorted to uh, assigning Congress's own investigative body at that time when it was called the General Accounting Office, the GAO. And uh, they were not interested in speaking to any witnesses, as we both re- recall, but they did a, a request for documents through all the different branches and, again, departments of intel. And they essentially came up empty handed. They came up with a single FBI document that we already had in our possession.
2: Well, to Uh, make it even worse, the FBI document we had in our possession was not redacted. And the one they came up with
3: was redacted. Redacted. Was redacted, exactly, exactly. And so I'm very concerned that, again, because of of this lack of cooperation and the fact that I don't believe there's a member of Congress that is gonna know the truth regarding this subject if it hits them between the eyes for having really zero knowledge of, of, of the subject. And whatever they're presented, they're just going to really accept. And I think their they're utmost concern, first of all, this involves national security. We're dealing with a technology, earthbound, uh, from one of our adversaries, and that, uh, my God, we're going to have to really catch up because we're falling behind in this particular category, that type of thing juxtaposed to, well, we have a, a major breakdown in intelligence. How come we don't have enough field agents any longer that are bringing us this uh, uh, security information that uh, we can you know, plan and, and strategize accordingly, that type of thing? So it, it comes down to who would have ever predicted that you'd have the likes of a Stephen Greer right now predicting that this was going to be a false flag? that they're going to essentially announce that we're being invaded. And as a result, we have to, you know, uh, pick up our as far as our defense budget. And uh, it might be a diversion or a distraction for something else, more nefarious, that type of thing. And then you have the likes of Dr. Jacques Vallée, considered probably the foremost scientist involved in the field. And he's chasing after a phony crash retrieval in San Antonio, New Mexico at the moment.
2: Well, interesting you bring that up because I've been queried about that as well in the last uh, week or 10 days about it. And I look back into my files. I had a long document of an interview with um, one of the young men, uh, Remy. Ray, Ray Baca. Baca. Ray Baca. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and uh, and some other documentation I was able to. So I put something up at my blog, which allows me to now say you can read it at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Uh, but it's, it, it is a very problematic case.
3: Yes, yes.
2: Give, give us a little bit Give us a little bit of the details of it so the, the, the listeners know where we are, and those who would like more information, of course, can, can find it at my blog.
3: Well, I think my first um, awareness of this supposed case happened now 25, 26 years ago. I had just lectured in, in Ventura, uh, California, just north of L.A., and I was introduced to this gentleman. And the reason the name stood out was because of uh, the 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 Baca, as far as in connection with Barney Barnett. Yeah, that
2: was my first my first thought too when I saw the name. I thought of uh, the the Baca who lived across the street from Barney Barnett
3: in Socorro, New Mexico. Right. And if it had connection, and the point is, then as he was describing to me what they had experienced. And he didn't mention his brother at the time. He spoke as though it was a, a, you know, a a, a lone uh, experience on his part. Well, actually, the
2: other guy was his friend, not his brother.
3: Yeah. And yet it's being billed as his brother. And um, and then he's describing that this happened out on the plains of San Augustine. And so right there, he started to lose me. Because, you know, we were still looking into the plains and, and, and you and I have spent time out there. In fact, I have a, a picture of the two of us by in front of the, the huge array, the large array. The very large array. the Very large array. And um, Tom, Carey, uh, Tom Carey and I, we, uh, we spent a lot of times, so whenever we had another rancher out in that area between Socorro, Magdalena, Daddle, Horse Springs, you know, we were making a side trip over to that region. And at least uh, allowing the individual to provide us with whatever information that we might be able to tie to uh, a possible event out in that region. And we came up empty handed. We were still all on the same page that nothing happened out there as far as 1947 in connection with Roswell. Well, most the, interesting
2: thing, the interesting thing, the interesting thing was that the San Antonio crash allegedly took place in August of 1945, so 1945. it's nearly two years prior to Roswell.
3: And Kevin, when Baca first is telling me about this, he's saying that it happened out on the Plains in 1947. So it was like every time, and to me, it was almost like a, a Colonel Lieutenant Colonel Willingham situation all over again, that every time we talked to him the date and the location was changing. And that only goes so far, that only goes the first time you start changing things, goodbye. And then when he sent us pictures of this artifact, which was was clearly a flange from some type of a generator or motor or something of that sort. And then after they talked to uh, Phyllis uh, Butzing in um, Butwick or whatever her name is in Ohio, to do some analysis on it, and concluded that it was 100% terrestrial. Again, end of story. End of story. So well, Mufon
2: Mufon did look into it and analyze the metal, and said that it was basically terrestrial, which didn't rule out a terrestrial, extraterrestrial uh, source for it. It means it, you couldn't prove that it was not terrestrially based metal. But I think what's important here, we you know, we need to say that these two youngsters, they were seven and nine at the time. Uh, had heard something, um, seen a flash of light, went to the source, saw a down craft, saw alien creatures that they described to us, uh, described uh, to others, I guess I should say. Um,
3: Described them as being uh, frantic, that they were darting and running all over the area, you know, panic-stricken from the the crash, that type of thing. And uh, those are all details that we were never told before.
2: Well, as I say, I, I outlined this in a a, a posting at my, my blog about San Antonio. And in fact, there's a link to the photographs that you were the photographs of the material you were talking about as well right. there. So if people can see exactly what what this material looked like. Uh, what what struck me about this whole thing is they 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 got there allegedly just after the thing crashed. Okay, that that's okay. Kids would naturally gravitate toward that to see what's going on. Okay, I buy that. Uh, they came back two days later, and um, the the beings were gone, but the crack was still there. Eventually, it came about that they were looking at um, they were there, and they would see military personnel involved in it cleaning it up, but they didn't do a very good job. They didn't clean it up very well. They didn't secure the site like you would expect so that the kids could get back in and they actually went and bought a, aboard the craft to, to look around uh, and that sort of thing. And all of that bothers me about the San Antonio crash. And as I say, I kind of lay this whole thing out um, on the blog. I'm hoping to speak with um, Jacques Vallée and Piola uh, Bola Harris Harris. Harris. Um, in, the, in June after their book comes out about it as well, because there may be something in there that would clarify the situation and make it seem a little bit more um, accurate, I suppose. The, thing, the other thing that always worries me about this is if there was a crash prior to Roswell, prior to 1947, the military doesn't react properly in 1947. If they had already had a crash and they knew what was going on, meaning it's obviously nothing Earth-based, then I suspect that the reaction would have been somewhat different in Roswell because the people at the top would have known what was going on and stopped some of the, the nonsense that happened afterwards.
3: Um, that has always been, you know, our argument as far as anything prior to Roswell, that it's, it's one thing for Colonel Blanchard, the base commander, to have dispatched, you know, who is ranking his head of intelligence and his head of counterintelligence, you know, as opposed to a couple of enlisted men just to go out and humor the rancher and, you know, just check it out, that type of thing. So yeah, they treated it, you know, as far as uh, with some semblance of urgency in that regard. But nonetheless, they were still nonchalant about it. They didn't, uh, Blanchard didn't dispatch an immediate you know, unit to go and cordon off the area and it's, oh my God, it's happened all over again, or, and the point being, this is just a few hours away from San Antonio, New Mexico. So certainly there would have been some knowledge to that effect if something should have happened back in 1945.
2: Well, we're also stuck. We're also stuck with the testimony of two guys who were nine and seven years old at the time. Um, there's another fellow named Brofrey, I think, something like that, whose father was a station supposedly at Alamogordo in 1945 and they were somehow involved in a retrieval operation um, but I've been unable to verify any of that sort of information uh, the, the press release that came out about this suggested they had uh, found another witness a new witness but I don't know who would be who would have been and Bach I think died in 2000 uh, 2000 uh, Nine, two thousand seven, two thousand nine. He he died a number of years ago. Right, right. Uh, which eliminates one of the witnesses in the, in that respect. Um, well, I mean,
3: I, so how a problematic the, San, the the Plains of San Augustine has been since day one, because in the case of Barney Barnett. Now, granted, it was all secondhand. We never had the good fortune of, uh, of speaking with Barnett. But nonetheless, his background, World War I, and, uh, you know, his working as a civil engineer with the state at that time and his reputation within the community, we, f- we never found anything that uh, would smack of any uh, fabrication, any false storytelling, any tall tales, that type of thing. But nonetheless, because we were unable, as much as we tried, to uh, come up with additional witnesses, come up as far as with any information that even placed us on a specific location. That we had we had to dismiss it. Well, and I think Roswell, you know, always set such a high benchmark because you had the press release, you had names in the paper, and you we had the base yearbook, and uh, you know we just had uh, you know a thousand names to start with, a uh, potential witnesses.
2: Well, I think we need to examine Barney Barnett a little carefully here, uh, which we'll have to do in just a moment because we're running out of time on this segment. Uh, we'll come back to the Plains of San Augustine because there's some things that need to be discussed about the Plains of San Augustine that uh, gets overlooked. And, I, and that's one of the problems I have with the UFO community and what I was talking about with the History Magazine was the superficial nature of the research being conducted. When we have the tools to go into deep, deep background on this, by sitting in your home, you can access everything. Yes. Uh, we'll come back to that when we have a chance. Uh, I wanted to mention there's some other fine programs about the paranormal as opposed to UFOs on the x Broadcast Network. So take a look at the website and you'll find something I'm sure that'll be of interest to you. We will be back right after this, so please stick around. by Don Schmidt. We're engaging somewhat into a stream of consciousness investigation of UFOs here because we kind of meander around things and link one thing to the next thing to the next thing. So it's one of these streams of consciousness things, which is not necessarily a bad way of doing this. When we went away, we were talking about the Plains of San Augustine, and it's odd that that came up not long ago as well. Somebody was talking about um, the Plains of San Augustine and how it related to UFOs, and... Uh, what got me was uh, Fred, no Fred, um, Hurt. Uh, it was Wesley Wesley Hurt and um, yes. yeah, and 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 the uh, the other guy's name is escaping me at the moment. Um, Who had, Dick, had Herbert Dick? Herbert Dick.
3: Herbert Dick right. Uh,
2: and I always wrote the names down in, in in the paragraphs where they came up. It was always be Hurt Dick uh, because I thought that was a proper way of doing it. I know. <laughs> but it, but it came up. It came up that Herbert Dick had lied about his involvement on the Plains of San Augustine. Just, just flat out lied. Denied he'd even been there. I'm working, the guy who was
3: working I'm at the guy, Bat Cave at that time. Correct. Pardon me. He claimed he was working at the Bat Cave at that time. No, he.
2: Well, yeah, he was working the Bat Cave. But the the one of the things that came up was how he had not. Um, even he categorically denied he was on the planes in July of 1947. And I'm the guy that talked to him. And what he had told me was he didn't know exactly when he got there, but he didn't think he was there in the first week. And later we found documentation that, he was, that yes. put him there yes. on July 1st, which means he would have been in a position to see the recovery operation, no matter when it took place, because he was there from July 1st through the the whole first week in the, through what? July. Right. Right. Um, but but that came up again, and, and we keep fighting these same battles over and over again. Uh, I have the documentation that he was there. He didn't see anything. If Barney Barnett was involved in a UFO retrieval, it was not in July of 1947.
3: In fact, we both interviewed his boss, Fleck Danley, on separate occasions. And the last time I spoke to, to Danley myself, and I asked him point blank, now, when do you recall that Barney actually, you know, acknowledged this, admitted this, you know, d- described this to you. Do you? Did, what year do you f- believe this happened? And the best he could come up with, at least for me, was, well, I think it was around 1950, is what he said. And then when um, Art Campbell, who, uh, you know, probably spent more time investigating the whole Plains of San Augustine event of any sort, and, I, and and rest in peace, Art, I mean, uh, as far as you were a good friend, though I didn't accept your final conclusions, but none, nonetheless, when I asked Art, what year do you believe this all happened? And he said, well, we focus on 1947, but we can't confirm that. So even he was being very flexible as to the date in question. Now, as we both know, Kevin, I mean, where were all the rocket launches, the captured German V-2 rocket launches taking place at that time? Well, just to the south, down in White Sands. And when we learned that whenever they were there was a scheduled launch, they would go out and they would evacuate the ranchers through that region, put them up in a motel in Socorro for the night, never tell them what was going on, what the problem was. And it became part of the background noise, you know, part of this secrecy, uh, you know, level. It uh, became part of the, 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 the rumor, the, almost like the, uh, the folklore of the area. And then there was a radar tracking facility also in the west of Socorro at that time. You could go out there and there are mounds of crushed asphalt after they evacuated and demolished the site many years ago. And so you had military driving in and out within that region occasionally. So that all would lend itself to uh, the notion that something had happened. Something had come down and uh, it became part of the urban legend.
2: Well, I, really, we should point out that you know, Barney Barnett claimed that he had seen the crash on the plains of San... But he didn't really say the plains of San Augustine. He always said the flats. Right. And Gene Maltese, in one of the interviews... Wasn't sure where where he meant by the flats because there was a number of locations in New Mexico that people referred to as the flats. So it may not have been on the Plains of
3: Santa. We learned, we, and you remember, we both were told that there were areas as far as on the J.B. Foster Ranch that um, Mac Brazel supervised that there were areas that were also called the flats. That's that's very common in you know.
2: But right. the point is, you know, Barnett claimed to have seen the crash saucer and was chased away by the military and that sort of thing. When I talked to Fleck Danley, it was clear to me he didn't have any clue as to when the conversation took place. Right, right. And right. I thought and, and if I pushed him on a number of issues, I could have got him to admit practically anything I wanted to. And, of course, in an investigation, you're not wanting to push somebody for, no. to get what you want to hear. You're trying to learn what exactly they knew. I think and I, Carl Flock and I did a an article about Barney Barnett.
3: I recall, yes.
2: And we published in the IUR, and our conclusion was that if Barnett saw anything, it was probably in 1950, and if he was making up the story, it was because of the release of Behind the Flying Saucers, which was the book Frank Scully had done about a crash, actually three crashes of flying saucers, one of them in Aztec, New Mexico, and that information was published in the January uh, January. 17th issue, I think, of Time Magazine. I think it was the January 17th issue. uh, That week in in, uh, Time Magazine about the book with no real commentary about the authenticity of it. So I think that if Barney Barnett was spinning a tale, that was the genesis of it.
3: Yes, Um, and and that and as we both remember that Moore, Bill Moore and and Stan Friedman, in trying to come up with bodies to uh, the Roswell event, when the book Roswell Incident came out in 1980, that uh, they elevated the planes to the point that there was a connection. As far as there being any type of connection, I hold them, you know, entirely responsible for that.
2: Well, I think the, the point is, you know, and you you kind of alluded to it was when they they were doing their book, they had good information about what happened in the Roswell end of things. Because they had Bill Brazel, they had Jesse Marcel, and, but they're all talking about metallic debris. They're not talking about anything really exotic that you can point to and say, this truly is extraterrestrial. When they got to the Barney Barnett story, which came through Vern and uh, Gene Malfays, uh now they got bodies. Now they've got to connect the two events, and one's over in western New Mexico, one's in southeastern New Mexico. How do we connect these two events right. so that we can bring the bodies and the extraterrestrial nature in there? And I think that was the, the, the reason they worked so hard to connect those two locations, because that did what they needed to do. Now, Bill Morris come out, I think, since then and, and kind of of um, repudiated the whole Plains of San Augustine uh, discussion.
3: And I believe it's are correct, yes, yes.
2: And so, you know, that kind of hurts um, the Barney Barnett tale. But, th- and that's the other thing, we've got UFOs raining out of the sky in New Mexico. We have Roswell, we have the Plains of San Augustine. we have Aztec, that's we have San Antonio. Armageddon.
3: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And as you know, again, as far as within the military, that very often that becomes part of the damage control, part of the containment. In that uh, the, the boy crying wolf that you'll flood the area with a lot of essentially BS to obfuscate, you know, the true nature of the actual event. And uh, that was exactly the case in New Mexico at that time and for a number of years thereafter. And it's discussed earlier as far as with the, the uh, both mogul and the the Rawin target balloon devices where they were putting on the demonstrations all over the country.
2: I've always been in the impression that the Aztec case was an outgrowth of Roswell, meaning that um, Silas Newton and Leo Gebauer, who are the two right. main villains in the tale. Oh,
3: perpetrators, right,
2: yeah. Perpetrators, that is a good word, uh, told Scully about it. I've always been in the impression that somehow, well, they, they, they had heard about the Roswell case. It was in the newspapers all around the country, so it, that they might have blundered into it that way and, yeah. and thought of this as a way of, of, um, perpetrating one of their cons, but they, they, uh, they moved the event from Ros- the Roswell area up to Aztec so that we didn't get associated with the balloon explanation. Um, but I always thought that was kind of the, the rationale behind their story and they just left it in New Mexico and ran with it from there.
3: Uh, it, yeah, the, and- it certainly is the, the the most likely impetus as far as that they had so much information already, you know, uh, announced in the press. And just to relocate the event and create a new storyline around it, it really didn't take much effort at that time. And so I, I, I agree with you that it was the most simple uh, explanation of what transpired regarding Aztec, that they just shipped Roswell to... Uh, I know-
2: I know a number of people, Frank Warren, for example, disagrees with us on this, and they think that there was some quality information buried in the Aztec case. And it turns out that um, Newton was was, uh, a very interesting character when you look into his background. I guess he was a championship golfer. Uh, For example, played in a number of major tournaments, he uh, hobnobbed with some of the rich and famous because of that sort of thing, and yet it seemed that his personality was such that if there were two ways of doing something, an easy way of doing it, or a con, he went for the con every time.
3: Right, right. Um,
2: But he was caught up in a number of fraudulent cases and was convicted of a number of fraud, and I think when he died there were 17 lawsuits against him, and he died virtually penniless although he lived at the higher end of the of the spectrum through his uh, manipulation of people and his cons.
3: And sadly, he took a lot of people with him as a result because they didn't uh, get paid back for much of his malfeasance.
2: And the other thing we should say is this is the reason that uh, ufology rejected the ideas of UFO crashes for years and years and years, is because it always came back to Aztec and that great hoax that... Uh, uh, Frank Scully wrote Behind the Flying Saucers, which was a uh, bestseller of the time, which documented three different UFO crashes, Aztec being one of them. Um, well, and- you
3: correct, Carol, When you think about it, I know Dr. Dave Jacobs would even debate and argue with us that, well, something of this magnitude you couldn't keep secret for all, all that time. Well, but a lot of it was due to the damage control. And then the guilt by association, as you mentioned, as far as with Frank Scully, that there was that 30-year lull that if not for Jess Marcel breaking, you know, his, his oath of silence, that who knows how much longer it would have been before Roswell would have been resurrected. And then- I would...
2: I would give I would give the credit actually to Len Stringfield.
3: Yes, I because
2: was. he started collecting tales of of cra- what he termed crash retrievals, and by doing that that limit, legitimized a great deal of the research being done. Um, and then of course, Jess Marcel shows up on the scene, and now we've got a, a location and a time frame, and we can look back in the newspapers and the limited documentation and say, here is something important that happened. What can we learn about it? And a lot of the people who were involved in that were still alive, and we had an opportunity to speak with them on a first-hand basis rather than dealing with second- and third-hand sources that we have to deal with now.
3: Agreed. And to me, one of the greatest tragedies as far as within the history of UFOs is that uh, Len's original files, not the files, uh, the the earlier files before just Marcel, and others of any noteworthiness, that MUFON, you know, touts and they claim that they have, you know, the lens Springfield files. No, no, they have the first set. Prior to his uh, his uh, MUFON conference presentation in 1977 in Dayton, where the floodgates just opened, those files are still withheld by the family based on Lens' final wishes. And wouldn't we love to have had access. And as we both know, land had promised us we were going to get those. And again, third party interference and it, it shot it all down. But to have all those names and to be able to, you know, look into some of the more contemporary where there's still witnesses, hopefully alive.
2: Well, we're going to have to take a break here. Once again, uh, when well, now we're involved in crash retrievals, when we turn to that topic, when we come back after this, because uh, I think it's, where important information lies. And not only of it about crash retrievals, but how some of the hoaxing has gone on and some of the divides in ufology are also there. I've always got a lot of extra information about our discussions at the blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. When we come back, Don, I'm gonna get you to tell me where they can find more information about your research and what you've been doing as well. you're listening to a different perspective on the Exxon broadcast. Oh. Network, back right after this. I am here with Don Schmidt we've been talking a lot of uh, information about various aspects of ufology here in the last uh, 45 minutes. We're, uh, when we broke away, we were getting into crash retrievals and the work that Len Stringfield had done. And I'll note here that prior to Len's research into this and Len's publication of his various monographs on crash retrievals, uh, four or five of them that came out over the years before his death, most of us in ufology rejected the idea of flying saucer crashes. We just didn't believe they were uh, anything to, to look into. And I will say today, I think there's lists of three or four hundred different crashes around the world. And I don't think that's feasible. It's just impossible. I would limit it to a, a handful and maybe uh, a fingerful just kind of go in that direction, that there's just not that many UFO crashes going around. But it was Len Stringsfield's work that uh, got us interested in this sort of thing. And his idea was that he would collect the stories and he would do some research into them, but he would also publish other stories he didn't have an opportunity to research into, thinking that somebody else would pick up the mantle and run with it. Uh, maybe clarifying the situation, uh, showing why it's a hoax, showing what it really was, how something had been misinterpreted. And I think that was a real service that Len Stringfield had done to the, the UFO community.
3: Absolutely. And and I'm proud of the fact that and you and I made numerous visits with, with Len, and we stayed in regular uh, communication with him. And then we had that final meeting with him at the QFOS office in Chicago. And that's where he had uh, provided us with his final decision about turning his files over to us and respectfully uh, QFOS, uh, up- upon his death. And uh, that we had you know gained his confidence enough that we had done something that even J. Allen Hynek wasn't able to do, and that was getting you know gaining the cooperation of Len and specifically in providing the names and the contact information of these so-called whistleblowers. And um, it's, again, just very unfortunate. Well, I think the,
2: I, I, the one thing I noticed about our discussions with Len is he didn't want to violate the confidences on some of the, with some of the people.
3: He was tremendous on that. I mean, nobody could. I mean, that's, I think that's another reason he became such a magnet, because he, he, he demonstrated that he could be trusted with uh, their confidential information.
2: But I also noticed that when you and I were sitting with him talking about these things and he was looking at his files, that once in a while he would reveal something in the, yes. on, on the paper, yes. not saying it to us, but reveal it on the paper um, to give us a clue on how to find some of the people. And uh, I, I think he kind of did that as a way of alerting us to where you needed to go to research, to how you needed to contact these people that would lead us into other arenas. And, I, and, I-
3: and in that way, he could say, I didn't provide any information. I didn't violate that trust. And, uh, and, if, if they happen to see something, well, I can't help that.
2: And, and we can say, well, Len didn't tell us anything. Precisely. And we can say that with all honesty. So I think that was a good thing. But That's I was, I was importance. impressed with. Um, well, he was the one that uh, got the Willingham story. Uh, published something in the about the Willingham story. The the guy who claimed as a fighter pilot he'd seen a UFO crash on the uh, Texas-Mexico border near Del Rio, Texas back in, uh, originally in 1948, I think it was. Yeah, 48,
3: 50, 51,
2: 52. I noticed that um, in my my research, I asked a number of people, did you vet this guy, Willingham? And they said, well, no, somebody else did. And nobody ever did it. So I went back and got his military record and discovered he'd been in the... Army for 13 months, was not a fighter pilot, was not an officer, um, and he kept changing the dates. I actually found the um, original story that appeared in Skyhook, which was a forerunner to the MUFON Journal, uh, where Willingham talked about this uh, event and putting it in 1948 and and that sort of thing. But then it became 1950, and then the last time I talked to Willingham, it was, well, it was in the mid-1950s, 54, 55, somewhere in there.
3: Oh, he had even conned Heinic, and I think what where he had fooled Heinic was with his so-called sworn affidavit, and that he had given a statement, and um, it was one of the reasons that Heinic himself became more intrigued by crash retrieval cases. But uh, again, unfortunately, it uh, was by the likes of uh, a Colonel Lieutenant a Colonel Willingham.
2: Well, let's uh, we've kind of hinted around I'm- fumbling for the question here, kind of hinted around uh, various crash retrievals. Which ones do you think are authentic of all the crash retrievals that have been talked about? And I did a book called Crash When UFOs Fall from the Sky, and I think there's 110 cases listed in that book. Which ones do you think are authentic? Obviously Roswell, but from there, where do we go?
3: Well, and, and, and Roswell, I guess mainly for the fact that they started it. They're the ones that put out that press release. We didn't. It's not like we came in, and, and you and I both were skeptical on Roswell. We both thought we'd make that weekend jaunt down to New Mexico, and you know, have a good time, and wrap this up, you know, and do course that type of thing, and the rest is history. But uh, I, I like Las Vegas, and I know that's a case that you looked into, and the fact that it had uh, multiple sightings prior to the explosion over Las Vegas. Now, well, not that that was an actual crash of an object, but that at least there's a, a bit of a paper trail. Well, I talked
2: to, talk to a lot of people involved in this, and I'm now convinced that the Air Force was right when they split the two events, the one in Utah and the one in Las Vegas apart. I think there okay. was. But, you know, that's a, that's another long involved story about that. I'm I'm. There was no object retrieved or anything like that, but there right. were a number of cases where we had electromagnetic effects going on, and the object making a great swooping turn and and, and proving that it wasn't a meteor. I'm not convinced that was a crash retrieval, but it's an, there's some interesting aspects to that case. But but wh- wh- where else would you
3: go? I, I, I'm very curious about what or who the sources were for Dorothy Kilgallen, as far as on Spitsbergen and the fact that just as much as she was becoming intrigued with that possibility, and then she was getting involved with the JFK assassination and everything, and then she has that untimely death. Not that there was necessarily any uh, connection, but uh, I think she, as uh, is, is a true journalist for her time, highly respected, highly regarded, and that if it was enough to attract her interest based on whatever, or whoever the, her sources were, that uh, their potential was some paid dirt to it. Uh, I don't uh, go along with Aztec or Farmington or uh, Kecksburg, any of those sort, even Brazil. I'm
2: wait, very, wait, you know, wait, not... wait, stop. Yes. Kecksburg, you're, you're saying Kecksburg is
3: not a UFO crash? Um, I still remain unconvinced because of the bolide, because of the reentry possibility at the time, um, and the description the, the shape of the craft and the markings on it, um, I'm still open to uh, uh, Soviet reentry. Interesting because
2: I've come to the similar conclusions, although I'm not sure the Soviet entry, Reentry figures into it, but that may be a factor, but I've uh, often thought that there was an awful lot of false information. You remember we interviewed a number of people who went there early in the morning. Uh, right, Archaeology right. students, and I remember sitting in their, their living room talking about, and they, they arrived in uh, Kicksburg at like four or five in the morning and everything was dead. Nobody was around. Nothing was going on. Right. That's and true. if you think it was this big retrieval operation, there would have been people around. And it always kind of intrigued me. And of course, as you mentioned, the bolide, um, clearly there was a meteor fall that day that would explain it. And if you've got a smoke trail from the meteor, which is not unusual, the winds aloft would blow it around. So you get the impression that the thing made turns when it did not. So it's interesting that you brought up Kecksburg as being not. um,
3: Well, and we both know that, especially if it was any reentry, if it was a, uh, an American re-entry, that that NASA and the uh, you know all the documentation that it supposedly you know was taken directly to Wright Pat in Dayton, Ohio. That would have been the case if it would have been ours. If it would have been Soviet or alien, in any event, they would have been involved.
2: Well, I was I was interesting that you you, you kind of on the same page I am on on Kecksburg. What about Shag Harbor?
3: A, a very very good case. I think um, just all the circumstances, the fact that, it, you know, it's, it's submerged, you know, within the Bay, that area. Um, I, I think uh, the eyewitness testimony is held up. And I think uh, some of the independent investigation that, that a parallel regarding the case that, um, you know, I find it a, a case that to me remains wide open.
2: The interesting thing about that that I've, I've thought of, I always thought of it as not really a crash retrieval, but more of an emergency landing. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. object lands in the water. There's actually a photograph of it, and I published it in uh, the book I did uh, 20-some years ago called uh, The Randall Report, Picture of the Object in the Sky. The Condon yeah. Committee had an opportunity to um, investigate, and I think Jim Lorentz alerted him to him. They called up there, and I saw just a bunch of teenagers saw something and didn't get into it and, and ignored the... Ignore the information. Don Ledger and Chris Stiles have done a wonderful right. job of researching that.
3: Case. Absolutely. And as we know, I mean, there have been many cases of uh, underwater as far as uh, UFOs witnessed and documented, you know, and even foreign navies, that type of thing. So I think you may be onto something, the idea that it was an emergency landing or it just decided it was going to, you know, you know, submerge as far as into as far as the harbor there. And it who knows where it went from there?
2: Uh, there was a great response. There was enough, a lot of people. There were law enforcement involved in it, not just teenagers. Um, there was uh, um, a lot of documentation that Chris Stiles and Don Ledger recovered from the Canadian government about the case. And they, I guess the U.S. Navy was involved. There may have been some uh, Soviet presence as well at the time.
3: Well, know, to- they did an underwater as far as investigation. They went, they went down. They went and looked. As far as to see if there was anything, and that's the amazing thing. The point being that something did impact; it did crash, and submerge as far as into the water. And the point being, then where did it go?
2: Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, anything else that sticks out in your mind as a good crash retrieval, though?
3: I know I have to. I, I often present, you know, the argument that if I accept Roswell, then it makes everything else possible. But everything else, you know, pales in comparison and mainly because of, you know, that benchmark press release and the fact that the newspapers covered it as heavily as they did for the time. There's nothing else like that. And it, it immediately involved, you know, you know, the, the elite, you know, the uh, most, uh, you know, the 509 bomb group, the people in charge of the atomic bomb that it was ready made. It was as though if you were going to concoct a whole crash. You know, UFO scenario that uh, it was much beyond the thing from outer space, you know, up in the Arctic Circle type of thing.
2: Well, Don, I think we're out of time here, and I wanted to talk to you about abductions, and we're not going to get to it. Uh, you'll, you'll have to come back and talk to me about abductions at some time in the future, I think.
3: Well, we look forward to it, as always.
2: Um, where can people find out more stuff about your research and what you've been doing?
3: Well, we have uh, the website, which is RoswellInvestigator.com. And uh, certainly all the, the, the books are available at uh, Barnes & Noble. And um, Barnes & Noble still in existence, aren't they? I, yeah, I was
2: going to say, Barnes & Noble, they still exist.
3: It's <laughs> about it. It's about it, yeah. And, uh, and Amazon, certainly.
2: Okay. Um, next week, I'm going to be talking to a guy named Rob Re who wrote a book called UFOs Proof Proof Positive. (laughs) Proof Positive. Proof Positive. Um,
3: Easy for you to say.
2: Absolutely. We'll have some interesting discussion with him about uh, the evidence he presents in the book and how uh, how much of the proof is positive. My books, of course, like Don's, are available at Amazon.com. The latest is UFOs in the Deep State, which looks at the... way this situation is developed and answers the questions of why uh, does the government still deny this thing? Why are they still saying it hasn't happened? Why are they uh, pretending that UFOs aren't real, aren't uh, alien spacecraft? And it looks at that in depth, I think, and gives an idea, answers that question. Also, take a look at Roswell in the 21st Century, Encounters in the Desert, and of course, the best of Project Blue Book. I will be back in 167 hours with more information on ufos so thanks for coming in